Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's, uh, this is today's program um, on non-small cell lung cancer, what's new. And this program is done in collaboration uh, in partnership with the Longevity Foundation, and you'll be hearing more from the Longevity Foundation later on, Dr. Roy from the Longevity Foundation, um, and um, it's just a wonderful resource for all of you, and we really wanted to highlight them on today's program as well. Um, and um, today's program is made possible um, uh, by it's, it's, a, it's supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have over 250 participants on the program today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Bahrain, Canada, Colombia, Egypt, India, Iraq, Israel, and the United Kingdom. So this is de definitely a global call, and it's a, it's a uh, pleasure to have you all on the call today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joshua Sabari. Dr. Sabari is attending physician, thoracic medical oncology, assistant professor of medicine, NYU Langone Health, Promoter Cancer Center. And Dr. Sabari will be addressing non-small cell lung cancer treatment in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and current standard of care, including the role of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted cancer therapy. It's my pleasure now um, to bring on my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sabari. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I appreciate it. I want to thank the Longevity Foundation, and also thank you for having me part of the Cancer Care Connect workshop. I uh, really love these workshops, and it's an ability to really you know, connect and, and, and talk about really uh, pressing issues. So lung cancer is quite common, right? It's the third most common cancer in the United States. And it's important to note that lung cancer can occur in people who have smoked, but it can also occur in people who have never smoked. So really all you need is lungs uh, to have uh, lung cancer. So over 225,000 people a year diagnosed with lung cancer in the United States. And uh, a lot of people present in different ways. You know, interestingly, the most common way that people present with lung cancer is in an asymptomatic fashion, particularly with early stage cancer, cancers that are small, that are picked up incidentally. For example, going to the emergency room with belly pain and getting a CT scan of the belly and identifying a, a mass on the scan, or uh, in a patient who has low-dose CT scans as a screening test in people who have smoked. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, approved low-dose CT scans for patients who have never smoked, but current studies are underway uh, really assessing this patient population. So once you're identified to have an abnormality on a CT scan or an X-ray, there's very clear guidelines of how to proceed and how to better understand where the cancer started in the lung and whether it's gone to other places of the body. And we call that stage or staging the cancer. And it's also critical to obtain a biopsy or a piece of tissue uh, in order for us to better study the cancer and understand what type of lung cancer it is. We call that the histology. So for staging purposes, it's critical to get a CT scan. Uh, generally here in the United States, we get a PET CT, which allows us to better understand the metabolic activity or the activity of the cancer. And we also generally want to obtain an MRI of the brain to complete staging, really to look at the whole body, to understand where the cancer has started and where the cancer has gone. And if the cancer started in the lung and stayed in the lung, it's an early stage cancer, uh, and we call that stage one or two cancers, and those cancers are usually cured by resection or surgery alone. If the cancers are bigger, um, you know, bigger than four centimeters, or they've learned to travel to lymph nodes. Lymph nodes are areas that help fight infection in the middle part of the chest 
we call it the mediastinum, uh, if those lymph nodes are positive, sometimes we call it a stage three cancer, and the treatments may be different. And 2022 is really an exciting year uh, because we saw the approval of treatments, both chemotherapy and immunotherapy, as well as targeted therapies uh, for patients who have early stage cancers uh, in order to prevent this cancer from coming back. And also equally as exciting, we saw the approval of immunotherapy and chemotherapy for the first time before surgery. We call it the neoadjuvant setting. So these treatments before surgery to hopefully prevent cancer from coming back. In patients with stage four cancer, right, stage four cancers are cancers that start in the lung and learn how to travel through the blood to other places of the body, for example, like the liver, uh, the bone, or the brain. And it's important to note, it's not a separate cancer, right? This is the same cancer that started in the lung and learned how to travel to these other places, meaning if you biopsied uh, a liver lesion and a pathologist, that's a doctor who studies uh, um, cells under the microscope, if they looked at it under the microscope from a liver biopsy, they would, they would you know, surmise or, 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 or you know, state that this actually looks like lung cells in the liver. So this is cancer that started in the lung and learned how to travel through the blood to other places of the body. And in patients with stage four cancer, really the treatment of choice is a systemic treatment or a treatment that can go all over the body. And it's really important that at this point, um, you actually have tissue to define the histology or the type of cancer that it is. So we're gonna focus on non-small cell lung cancer today, but it's important to note that there is small cell lung cancer, which is less common, occurs in about 15% of people with lung cancer. And we won't talk about that today, really focusing on non-small cell. And non-small cell is the most common, about 85% of patients. And you might hear about the terminology adenocarcinoma or gland cancers. That's the most common type of cancer we see in the United States in the lung. But there is also a different histology called squamous. So it's important to know your histology to understand what type of uh, tissue we're dealing with. After we understand the histology, let's say it's an adenocarcinoma, a gland cancer, it's really critical to test for specific biomarkers. And one of the most important biomarkers that we think about are mutations or genetic alterations that could be acquired from the environment that could help match people to targeted therapies. And Dr. Mader is gonna talk extensively about this today, um, but really it's important, ask your physician, what is my mutation? What is my driver? Critical to understand that in 2023 to get the best possible therapy. Only if somebody does not have a driver mutation and is not eligible for a targeted therapy, we then look at something called PDL1 or program death ligand one. This is a marker on the surface of the cancer cells that allows us to better understand whether immunotherapy uh, will be successful. Now, immunotherapy, interestingly, does not directly kill cancer cells, but what it does is it revs up the immune system to better recognize and attack cancer. And if someone has a very high level of PDL1, greater than 50%, the recommendation is to potentially use immunotherapy alone in that patient and really avoid chemotherapy because the chances of immunotherapy working well are quite high. In people who have a low PDL1 expression, less than 50, we generally recommend doing chemotherapy in combination uh, with immunotherapy. Again, remember, driver mutation trumps all. It's very important to understand what your mutation is. If the mutation is, is negative or not, no evidence of a mutation, we then look at immunotherapy alone or immunotherapy in combination with chemo. To wrap up, you know, in the era of COVID-19 and critically 19, we're in 2023, it's a disease and a, and a virus that we're living with and dealing with. It's important to remain vigilant, you know, obviously to mask if you can in treatment areas, to be respectful of your, you know, um, colleagues, other patients, uh, but it's something that we know how to deal with well. Uh, we have obviously vaccination as well as great treatment strategies for patients uh, who are diagnosed with COVID. And oftentimes, you know, patients who are actively getting therapies who are diagnosed with COVID do quite all right. So I, I want to, you know, reassure 
and you know, I tell my patients all the time, the reason we give these therapies, the, the systemic treatments for cancer, is so that you can continue to live and function and do well uh, and, and not to uh, sort of uh, um, you know, limit yourself from going out and, and being active. So with that, I want to turn it back over to Dr. Carol Mesner. And again, appreciate your time. Look forward to the questions at the end. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sabari. That was really outstanding, a stellar presentation. And you really set the stage for our program today. So thank you very much. And we'll look forward to um, your being during the Q&A for questions. And so thank you so very much. And um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Catherine Mader. Dr. Mader is attending physician, Center for Thoracic Cancers, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Mader will be addressing the role of biomarkers and precision medicine in informing treatment choices and new ways to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. And it's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mader. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, um, and thanks to the Cancer Care Workshop and Longevity Foundation for the invitation to participate today. Um, it's a real pleasure to, to join this group. I'll spend um, hopefully the next few minutes just briefly discussing biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer, so what they are, how we use them to determine treatment options, like Dr. Savari just gave us that excellent intro for, um, and of course, happy to take any questions during the Q&A session at the end. So um, starting out, what is a biomarker? We think of this kind of loosely as a finding in the tumor, whether it's pathology, so looking under the microscope, or molecular, so looking at the DNA of a, of a tumor, um, that can influence treatment or inform prognosis. So again, kind of a broad definition, but I'll, I'll focus on a couple of important biomarkers in non-small cell lung cancer and how we test for these, um, both at the time of diagnosis and then maybe even later um, over the course of, of, of patient's care. Um, so, and I'll also really focus my time today on biomarkers in later stage non-small cell lung cancer, so metastatic or stage four. This is where biomarker testing is really the most established, but I, I do want to note, um, as you heard from Dr. Savari, it's important that, um, to say that there are lots of newly approved treatment options just in the last year for earlier stage lung cancer. And some of these biomarker testing, the DNA testing for driver mutations that we'll talk about and the pdl one testing that you heard about does have an evolving role in kind of deciding treatments for earlier stages of lung cancer. So that's an important thing to ask about um, when you're talking to your physician, um, even in the earlier stages. But I'll kind of use the example of metastatic or stage four disease um, as a jumping off point for talking about biomarkers. Um, so we heard from Dr. Sabari about the need for a biopsy when a cancer is first diagnosed. And the first step really is looking at that biopsy under the microscope, looking at that histology that you heard about. Um, so that's step one. And, um, but really looking, thinking about the standard of care for one of the first-line treatment options for non-small cell lung cancer requires testing of biomarkers at diagnosis. The main thing we're looking for is, um, first and foremost, molecular changes that we can look at by DNA sequencing. So these are mutations or fusions in specific genes um, that aren't present in the rest of the body, but they're present just in the tumor, and we found out over time that there's a handful of these that are known to drive the tumor, be driver alteration. Um, so ideally, to look for this, um, we do something called next-generation sequencing. That's just a fancy term for kind of a most comprehensive possible um, testing panel to cover lots and lots of genes to make sure that you're covering all of the essential ones. Uh, each hospital will have a slightly different testing panel typically, but really any NGS-based panel will generally cover the basic genes that you want to look for. Um, there are eight biomarkers in the DNA. So again, that's a mutation or a fusion or another change in the DNA that's specific to the cancer that we know is driving the cancer. There are eight of those that we look for that can change treatment for the first-line therapy, so whatever the, the most rec the recommended first therapy is. Um, two called EGFR and ALK, that's spelled A-L-K, are some examples. I won't list out the rest. Um, just know those are not the only ones, but there are several, and that's part of why we recommend using the panel to make sure that you cover all the necessary ones to look for. Um, there are other findings um, on the results of these panel testing that can affect treatment planning, but just not for the first line of therapy, so it's still helpful to have the full set of information when you're first diagnosed, um, but repeating this as a molecular test down the line is also helpful to look for acquired mutations that can develop over the course of treatment that can also be targetable. 
Um, and then there are some mutations that are relevant for later lines of treatment. So that's kind of the molecular or DNA sequencing side of things that's really important um, right off the bat after the biopsy. We also look for something called PDL1, um, which you heard from Dr. Savari, and that's actually a protein on the surface of the cell. So that's tested by something called IHC, um, or basically staining for this protein in the tumor tissue. So taking the biopsy, doing the stain by the pathologist, and looking under the microscope to see what the um, staining result is. So the two kind of different parallel tests that are important biomarkers to start out. Um, so together, you heard from Dr. Sabari, we use the molecular and or the sequencing results together with the PDL1 staining to determine the optimal treatment for first line of therapy, whether that is an oral therapy, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, for example, um, if the molecular testing shows one of those eight um, mutations or alterations I mentioned, or if that it's chemotherapy or immunotherapy if you don't find that driver mutation, but based on the PDL1 staining. So those are the two kind of critical pieces of information. Um, I think it's important to mention too, while, while both of these tests can be done on tissue biopsies and the tissue biopsy is critical, um, that kind of remains the gold standard. Liquid biopsies or cell-free DNA testing, so a blood test where they can actually look for some of these mutations just in the blood. Um, that are coming from the tumor are really increasingly useful in the setting of biomarker testing. Um, in the case of metastatic disease, they can actually have a high sensitivity for detecting these mutations or alterations that can help guide therapy, not only right at the time of diagnosis, but for example, if you start on one therapy and the cancer eventually becomes resistant or progresses on therapy, then getting that liquid biopsy can be really helpful to look at genomic testing. There are pros and cons to liquid biopsies. They're really great um, in that they don't require another tissue biopsy, so they're less invasive. And they do well at identifying these DNA-based biomarkers. Um, depending on the platform you use, there's lots out there. Um, they generally get the information back to you pretty quickly. Um, unfortunately, they can't detect everything. For example, we can't get a PDL1 status from a liquid biopsy that requires actually staining the tumor tissue. Um, and we can't look at that tumor histology um, uh, on a liquid biopsy. So there's some pieces of information that is not as complete, um, but a really good tool and one to ask about. Um, so I think, in, you know, Dr. Savari covered kind of the treatment decisions that can be made together with all that biomarker testing. And I'll just reiterate, after the first-line treatment, no matter what it was, when the cancer recurs, um, it's really important to investigate mechanisms of resistance, and that's a biomarker testing again, whether it's a repeat biopsy or a liquid biopsy. Um, so something to keep in mind. My last minute or so here, I did want to just talk a bit about kind of managing side effects and how we think about this. Another really important thing, um, you know, for patients and physicians to talk about together. Um, different therapies, whether it's targeted therapies or chemotherapies or immune therapies, have different side effect profiles. Um, and depending on how a certain treatment um, is tolerated by a patient, um, we have lots of different tools to help manage these side effects. Some of these are medicines. Sometimes we, we pause treatment for a period of time. Both of those options can be really safe and are important options sometimes. So um, I think sometimes there's a tendency um, among patients to minimize side effects or try to be stoic, but it's really important to communicate those because we have a lot of tools, um, including even pausing or decreasing the medication um, or adding in additional supportive medications um, over time in order to, to make these medications more tolerable and, and get more, um, more use out of them. So with that, I'll wrap up um, and pass this back to Dr. Messner. Thanks for your time, and again, happy to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mather. That was just an outstanding presentation, also quite stellar, and really lots of wonderful information. And, um, and I know people will have questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig, and Dr. Rosenzweig is Professor and Chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. And Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation therapy, including types of radiation therapy and their role in treating non-small cell lung cancer, and how clinical trials contribute to treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi, thank you very much, and thank you for having me as part of the panel today. Um, so I'm a radiation oncologist, and in addition to surgery and chemotherapy, radiation is an important part of cancer care, um, and especially lung cancer. So depending on the clinical situation, 
the radiation can have a different role. So for example, for a lung cancer that's found very early, so a, a stage one lung cancer, now this might be a type of lung cancer that's found in a screening program or just incidentally uh, if someone has a scan for another reason. And if a, someone can't have a surgery, and there are various reasons why uh, someone might not be a candidate for surgery, then we typically use radiation by itself as a treatment for the lung cancer. And the goal is a cure. Um, so the radiation completely takes the place of the surgery in this situation. So the technique that we typically used is called stereotactic body radiation therapy, SBRT. Uh, it also has another initials, SABR, S-A-B-R, stereotactic ablative body radiation. So if you hear the word stereotactic, um, we're talking about a very focused radiation to a small area. Uh, the SBRT is typically done with three to five treatments, and it can be done at pretty much any modern radiation oncology facility. You know, it's been uh, used for about the past 20 years, but really in the past 10 years, it's become a very common treatment and, and standard of care. Um, so pretty much any place you go, if there's an experienced radiation oncologist, uh, they'll do an excellent job uh, uh, treating an early stage lung cancer with radiation alone. Now, if the lung cancer has spread to the lymph nodes, uh, this would make it a stage, typically a stage three lung cancer. So again, this might be a situation where surgery is an option, but if surgery is not an option, then once again, the radiation can take the place of the surgery. And in almost every situation, uh, we try to give chemotherapy and radiation uh, at the same time, or the, the medical word we use is concurrently. Uh, so we try to give concurrent chemo radiation uh, for these situations. And it's been found that doing both treatments at the same time works better than doing one followed by the other. Now, this is very different, whereas talking about early-stage lung cancer, where we're just doing three treatments or five treatments, so it typically gets done within the course of a week. For stage three uh, lung cancer, the treatments are... Uh, once a day, Monday through Friday, for about six weeks. So it's typically around 30 treatments. And so it's very inconvenient. You have to come in every day um, for a very short but intense period of time. The treatments are very quick, um, about five to ten minutes, but obviously there's a lot of inconvenience with getting to a center that has a radiation therapy. Uh, the side effects are... Um, a little bit different than the stereotactic radiation, which is tolerated very well. Uh, when you're doing chemo and radiation at the same time, um, you can get very tired. Um, the food pipe, the esophagus, which is the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach, can get very irritated, so people have to eat uh, soft foods during that time. Um, but otherwise, you know, um, people who are getting the, the chemo and the radiation, uh, we do get through it. Um, and then uh, after the chemotherapy and radiation is done, uh, that's when a, a lot of patients um, receive immunotherapy. So that's another use of immunotherapy that Dr. Sabari and Dr. Muter were talking about earlier. Um, we can also sometimes use radiation after a surgery. So the previous two situations I've talked about is where radiation is done instead of a surgery. Sometimes after surgery, if there's some worry that there might be some cancer cells left behind, uh, we give some radiation uh, to the area where the surgery had been. Uh, this is being done less and less frequently now, so it's really only in situations where there's a very uh, strong concern that some cancer cells might be left behind. Um, and that's done in a similar fashion to what I just described with a daily treatment over the course of five to six weeks. Uh, another, uh, the final use of radiation is in situations where the tumor has spread. What we've been talking about is metastatic disease. So in these situations, the radiation uh, can be used to alleviate any symptoms that the tumor might be causing. So for example, if someone has um, 
uh, a disease that has spread to the bone and it's causing pain. We frequently give radiation therapy to the bone uh, to kill the tumor there and to alleviate the pain. And this is a palliative treatment. It's not really taking care of all the disease throughout the body. We're really just focusing on one spot that's causing a problem uh, to help with the side effects there. And finally, I'd like to talk about uh, clinical trials. And so uh, the earlier speakers have talked about uh, some of the innovations that have really improved survival and quality of life in lung cancer. And these are all the results of clinical trials. So you know, over the past 10, 20, and really uh, 50 years, you know, uh, clinical trials are done where, an, and the typical scenario is a new treatment is added on to an existing treatment to see uh, which one is better. So, for example, I was talking about if lung cancer is in the lymph nodes, we now give immunotherapy afterwards. Well, that was a trial that came out a few years ago where um, people who had lung cancer were randomized, so there was a coin flip. And if you got heads, you got the chemotherapy and radiation plus a placebo. And if you got tails, you got the chemotherapy and radiation plus the immunotherapy. And then a few years later, they unmasked uh, what treatment people have, and, and you see who did better. And, and that's how we find out whether a new treatment is helpful or not through a clinical trial. I know some of the um, images people might have about clinical trials is um, someone in a white coat with a flask with smoke coming out of it, um, you know, pouring it into someone. But that's, um, you know, that's more for the movies or, or cartoons. It's, it, these are very controlled situations where patient safety is of the paramount importance, and these are drugs that have been used and, and shown to be safe for people, and then, we, and then small modifications are made to see if, if the new drug or the new treatment is helping compared to the standard of care. So once again, uh, thank you very much for having me here, and uh, I'll hand it back to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was really a, just a stellar, outstanding presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. It's such an important area for people to be aware of. Um, and um, so thank you for all the details that you provided to everyone. And of course, the importance of clinical trials, which I think um, for, many, for many of us in the oncology field, we realize that the, the treatments of today are based on the, all the research that's been done in the past by patients participating in trials, researchers, um, but really the uh, patients themselves being willing to participate in trials um, and often get care that is just incredible um, and way beyond what we have available now. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is Clinical Director of Early Detection and Prevention of Cancer, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. O'Donnell will be addressing the important role of movement and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Donnell. Hi, this is Betsy O'Donnell. It's so nice to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I'm a medical oncologist, uh, but I'm also uh, board certified in lifestyle medicine and patient survivorship and quality of life and, and really their lifestyle are particularly interesting and important to me. Today, I've been asked to talk a little bit about the important role of movement and quality of life in your cancer care. And I think that patients with lung cancer have some unique um, features that do make this very relevant. Um, you know, they're especially when it comes to movement, it has actually been studied within lung cancer that there is benefit sometimes to doing proactive physical therapy and specifically pulmonary physical therapy um, in anticipation of surgeries and also in follow-up. But physical activity can be challenging, um, and I think it can also be intimidating. So what I'd love to do is take the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what physical activity can mean. So the... Um, American College of Sports Medicine, the American Cancer Society, recommend 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, uh, three to four days per week, up to five being the ideal, in addition to doing two sessions of strength training. That's a big goal, and it might not be the right goal for everybody. So taking a step back, thinking about 
really what are the things that people can do who might not be able to reach that goal. So there are two components to that, movement in general, and then there is sedentary time. So starting with movement in general, what are the types of things um, that people can do that help stimulate uh, their cardiopulmonary system and also feel good, may make you feel um, your mood better, Moving yourself, being active during the day can help your sleep quality as well. So thinking about what physical activity can mean uh, doesn't need to be running on a treadmill or hopping on an exercise bike. Uh, it can be, you know, making sure that you try and take the stairs, getting up uh, in between if you're working from home or if you're not feeling well and recovering, you know, setting a clock and making sure that you're up and walking five to ten minutes on the hour, every hour. I am a huge proponent of dancing, putting some music on, whether it's in your kitchen or somewhere else, and, and getting your body going, doing something that feels good for yourself. Beyond that, you know, if you are in a recovered phase, you can start to layer on more structured activities. There are an abundance of resources out there, particularly on the Internet. Um, there's free content. You always have to talk to your doctor first, your medical oncologist or your primary care doctor, about what the right amount of exercise is for you. But it's great to set goals, um, even things like 5K walks that can um, support your favorite cause. Just to get out there and have something to train towards can be highly motivating and also make you feel good and make you feel part of the community. It's also good to partner with someone, um, to buddy up if you have a friend or a family member who, you know, you can engage in some activity with. Uh, it's, you know, also helpful just in terms of stimulating accountability and also social connection, which is such an important part of quality of life. Um, when we think about the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, activity is one of them, nutrition is another, sleep, stress, substances, but also social interactions. And so, you know, those are really important in terms of our overall happiness and health and quality of life. Um, when you do have better stamina, and particularly respiratory stamina, I think that is an important factor for lung cancer uh, patients and survivors uh, in terms of their quality of life. Um, the other thing I touched on is sedentary time. You know, some of us have sedentary time commuting or working, um, but even at home, there, on average, patients spend multiple hours per day sedentary and often engaged in activities on their phone. So being aware or maybe trying to track the amount of time you're spending that's sedentary and trying to limit that um, can also be of benefit. So just being aware of that time. Um, and again, really coming back to just this quality of life piece, you know, there are a lot of different components that go into this and, you know, how to really thrive. Um, some of it is physical. A lot of it is emotional. You know, so really trying to find ways to bolster your physical wellness to, to support uh, your emotional well-being is a really important goal um, in terms of your complementary cancer care. Um, so this is just a brief snippet on physical activity. Again, it's such a pleasure to be able to be here today um, and to support you. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. That was really just an outstanding presentation and really giving people really creative ideas of how to build in some activity and movement into their lives with all different levels depending on your comfort level and what you discuss with your physician in terms of what's appropriate for you to do and what isn't. But these sound like just some wonderful tips and um, and just um, and probably um, even there is something called dancing in your imagination. So if for some reason you really are very restricted and you're moving, you can put some music on and you can dance in your imagination, but you can also dance in live and get that physical activity in. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bairden. And Ms. Bairden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And she will be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in your tolerance to treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. During your treatment, your diet might be modified, um, oftentimes to assist with any side effects that you're experiencing. Now, each person's journey is different, and so 
even though we know a lot of side effects that can come up, it's so important that you communicate with your healthcare team. We need to know the, the you know, when something comes up, as this, how it's impacting you, what challenges that you're experiencing as an individual, and then we can help you sooner rather than later. So just some general potential side effects that you might um, experience. Again, not everybody experiences all the side effects listed here, but this is in general. So such as dry mouth, maybe difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, maybe a decrease in appetite, and possibly fatigue. Now, one of the things that we really focus on with patients going through treatment is making sure that they're able to meet their nutritional goals. And it can really impact not only your tolerance to treatment, but just how you feel overall. It can even delay your treatment. So a dietitian is part of your healthcare team, and a dietitian is there to help support you during this time, make sure that you have the information on your unique needs, such as um, calories, your protein needs, fluid needs. Um, and so one of the things we really pay attention to is weight trend, especially with patients going through lung cancer treatment. Um, oftentimes, um, weight loss is something that is a challenge um, that we experience during lung cancer treatment, and it's something that we want to avoid while you're going through treatment. Even if you're overweight, you can actually still become malnourished. But when you are losing weight during cancer treatment, you tend to lose more muscle mass. And muscle mass is so important because not only does it help us get up and walk around and do the things that we enjoy, but it also helps us breathe and it helps us swallow. And so when we start losing muscle mass, we can see an impact on patients' ability um, to endure eating a meal. So sometimes, um, you know, small frequent meals is something we may talk about. We may talk about focusing on high-calorie, high-protein options. But Again, talking with your healthcare team when things arise sooner rather than later is going to be the best way we can help you. Now, there are medications that can assist with the side effects that you experience, but make sure you understand how to take the medications, that if you have somebody that can come with you, they understand so that you have a backup if you're not feeling well. Um, but if you're finding things are challenging with eating, take note of that. That'll help us better understand how to help you. And that's what we're here for. Now, hydration is something that we oftentimes don't put a lot of focus on, but it's very, very important. And dehydration can happen during cancer treatment. It can make you feel worse than, um, than you would if you were hydrated. And so things like nausea, fatigue, headaches, amplified when you're dehydrated. Now, fluids, anything that's liquid at room temperature. This includes milk, water, spritz drinks. Um, but in general, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses a day of, of fluid. Again, each person's unique, and some treatments may increase your fluid needs. So talking with your healthcare team is, is really important. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team. We're all here to help you. And please reach out to us, know how to contact us, and the sooner you get to us, the better. I'm going to close with that and hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Bearden. That was really excellent. Uh, just a wonderful presentation and such important. Everyone always wants to know about nutrition and hydration. Great recommendations for everybody. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Upal Basu Roy. And Dr. Uh, Roy is Executive Director of Research, Longevity Foundation. And he'll be discussing the free programs of the Longevity Foundation and provide you with their helpline and website and how to get in touch with um, Longevity Foundation. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roy. Dr. Metzler, thank you again for inviting Longevity to participate on this very, very important discussion and for a great partnership with Cancer Care. So Longevity Foundation is a lung cancer patient advocacy group. We are here to serve you, whether you're a patient or a family member or a loved one of someone who's been diagnosed with lung cancer. We have two broad goals, improving how people live with lung cancer, and the second goal is improving outcomes for people diagnosed with lung cancer. And to this effect, we have a great array of free resources to serve you. Now, one of the things that was very, very obvious from the esteemed speakers before me was that lung cancer treatment is very complex. There is a no one-size-fits-all treatment modality for lung cancer, and I think that's great. 
lung cancer treatment is a great model for precision medicine because the treatment does need to be matched to the patient. And with this in mind, I'm going to share with you four really, really important resources from the foundation. The first one I want to talk a little bit about are lung cancer patient gateways. Now, Dr. O'Donnell talked a little bit about finding your community. That's what the lung cancer patient gateways are about. They are here to help you find your community, find someone who's been diagnosed with the type of lung cancer that you have, whether it's non-small cell lung cancer, whether it's EGFR positive lung cancer, whether it's out positive lung cancer, we have a patient gateway for you. Now, these patient gateways are one-stop shops, essentially, for people like you. So you can learn about your specific type of lung cancer, connect to experts, connect to patients such as yourself, learn about new clinical trials, and access educational resources. The second free resource I want to talk to you a little bit about are our education services specific to biomarker testing. And Dr. Mader talked a lot about why biomarker testing is so incredibly important for finding the right treatment for your type of lung cancer. We have a booklet, we have a website, so you can find all of this information at www.longevity.org or you can find all of this information at Lung Cancer 101. We have information on how you can understand your biomarker testing report. We have education resources and on specific types of treatment that go along with a particular type of biomarker. We have a list of questions that you might want to take with you when you're having a discussion about your treatment with your doctor. So again, biomarker testing is incredibly important, and we have resources here to help you navigate biomarker testing. The third resource I want to talk to you a little bit about are our patient education services. And again, I talked a little bit about Lung Cancer 101. It's our comprehensive website. We also have a lot of booklets. Now, why do we have this very comprehensive patient education program? It is because lung cancer is, again, incredibly complex. You heard from Dr. Sabari. You heard from Dr. Rosenzweig how your treatment depends on the biomarker found in your lung cancer, the type of lung cancer, whether it's non-small cell or small cell lung cancer, the size of the lung cancer, has lung cancer spread to other organs. So all of these different factors decide your treatment journey, and we have resources to help you navigate this. For example, are you receiving chemotherapy? We have a booklet. We have education just on chemotherapy. Are you receiving immunotherapy? What types of side effects can you imagine and expect? We have education and resources to help you navigate that. Now, stage of lung cancer. Dr. Rosenzweig talked about radiation and early stage lung cancer. Again, we have resources for you. And last but not least, I want to talk a little bit about our fourth big offering, which is our patient services. And Ms. Burden talked a little bit about this as well, the importance of that holistic care. It's not just about the treatment that you receive in your clinic. It's much more than that. It's about hydration. It's about side effect management. It's about exercise. It's about diet. Our patient services, we have a lot of information there to help you navigate the all else of your treatment. We have a peer-to-peer -peer support group. We have a lung cancer helpline in partnership with Cancer Care. And again, Dr. Messner, thank you so much for having us, and I'll hand it back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roy, and what a wonderful resource for everybody to be aware of during the call. Some of you know about the Longevity Foundation. For those of you who don't, um, you can, um, we'll be sending you um, um, a survey monkey, and it will include an evaluation of the program, but also it will include um, all the resources we mentioned during the program. And so you'll have the helpline for Longevity Foundation, their website, um, and how to contact them for information. So thank you so much. And our uh, next speaker, is, is Charlotte Ferenz. She's an oncology social worker, and she's our lung cancer coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Ferenz will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services and discussing our Hope Line and our website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ferenz. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization 
providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, online support groups, educational workshops, publications, financial and copayment assistance for some medications. Our National Resource Navigation Service involves short-term, strengths-based approach where specialists work with patients and caregivers to find additional avenues of emotional or financial support. Many of our services depend on where people live, but it's helpful to utilize our Hopeline and see what services are available in your area. While we do work with people who are diagnosed with all types of cancers here, our national online support groups also have some programs specific to lung cancer patients and caregivers. They take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website to join an online support group that's specific to you. We also have Cancer Care's website, cancercare.org, with a wide array of reading materials and educational support. This includes recorded Connect Education workshops, Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care podcast, publications, as well as stories of help and hope. We also have national community workshops, our coping circles. Those address a variety of different topics and diagnoses, which you'd register for either online or on the Hope Line. As others have mentioned here today, navigating a lung cancer diagnosis is not something that you have to go through alone as a patient or a caregiver. So by calling the Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 if you live in the U.S., individuals have access to Cancer Care's oncology social workers who can help connect you with support. Reaching out for help isn't always easy, but it's important to both maintain your support systems and your coping strategies when dealing with a lung cancer diagnosis. It's been so great to be a part of this program today. Thank you for your attention and allowing me to speak. I'll turn the program back to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Friends, and, and thank you so much for that excellent description of Cancer Care Services. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask uh, Regina to explain to all of you how to um, ask a question, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So quite a few questions, actually. Um, so I'm going to start with some. Um, So um, this is a question for Dr. Sabari. I was recently diagnosed with early-stage non-small cell lung cancer. How quickly do I need to decide on a treatment plan? So this is a great question, Dr. Mesner. I mean, with anything, you know, we, we want to, you know, really figure out sort of what's going on, you know, and, and this is a question to ask your, you know, primary uh, doc, your oncologist. Uh, I like to generally work up uh, lung cancer within a four-week period uh, because we don't really understand the natural history of the disease until we have multiple scans. And, you know, most lung cancers are relatively slow-growing, but some of them can be more aggressive. So, you know, if you're newly diagnosed and you've had full staging, I would say a three- to four-week period where, you know, you make a decision about how to proceed. Uh, if we wait longer than that, you know, two, three months, I generally want to repeat uh, the evaluation again, the CT, the PET scan, to make sure things have not changed that may change our treatment paradigm. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, for Dr. Mader, are there standing protocols for ordering molecular testing in pathology departments, or does, does the oncologist have to make a request for molecular testing separate from the initial biopsy? Please share best approach to expedite treatment planning. So that's a great question, um, and, and my short answer to that would be um, I think it really varies between institutions. Um, you know, we talk all the time amongst our group about trying to optimize that workflow because, you know, as new, um, as there are new recommendations for biomarkers that need to be tested at various stages, um, then trying to make that as streamlined as possible is important, but that's always a moving target. Um, so the short answer is I think it's important, um, or I feel as a medical oncologist, to make sure I'm reviewing um, the case and, and have sent a specific request for testing if there's anything I feel is missing. Um, but some of that is reflex already, depending on the pathology department. Um, but I do think it's something worth double-checking and requesting. It does not always happen automatically, unfortunately. 
Excellent. Thank you. And for Dr. Rosenzweig, can I receive chemotherapy with radiation therapy? That is what my doctor recommended, but I am worried about added side effects. Yeah, uh, radiation and chemotherapy are very commonly done at the same time uh, for stage 3 lung cancer, which is lung cancer that is spread to the lymph nodes. Uh, so that's the standard of care. Um, there are increased side effects, but they're managed very well. Um, and, the, and the doctor will, be, will see you very frequently and try to anticipate the side effects and, and help them out before they become, you know, too difficult to tolerate. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and actually, someone's asked if this recording of this presentation will be made available. And yes, it will be available as a podcast probably um, in a couple of days. So just, um, I would say, by early next week, it should be available, and it'll be, it'll be up for a year, so you'll be able to... Um, Listen to the um, to the pre to the recording of this presentation, and a comment from as uh, a question for Dr. Um, Sabari. Thank you very much for the great talk. For a patient with stage four non-small cell lung cancer who has achieved tumor eradication or undetectable with PET scan with targeted drug therapy, what would be the typical next step? For example, how to deal with possible residual disease, etc. If you could comment on this, Dr. Sabari, in a general way. Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, you know, we're in an era where we're seeing, you know, no evidence of disease. Uh, you know, in the immunotherapy space, uh, we're seeing this in patients who have had therapy for two years or more. Uh, I generally repeat a PET CT, uh, you know, prior to stopping immunotherapy, and we watch patients with scans every three months. In the targeted therapy era, you know, we do have complete responses. Uh, my, you know, sort of inclination, and again, this is aggressive in my, in my nature, is to think about, you know, sort of surgical resection, uh, or if not feasible, uh, potential radiation to anything uh, that may be um, uh, sort of uh, left behind. Now, there's no prospective data. There are clinical trials ongoing to understand this, uh, to better study this sort of phenomenon of oligometastatic but more commonly in oligoprogressive, so if you have progressive disease. So it's a complex question. I would say discuss it with your oncologist in detail, uh, but I am of the uh, um, sort of uh, thought process that we should remove uh, any uh, potential disease um, that may be there, particularly in patients who are having complete responses that are durable. I would continue uh, the targeted therapy, and again, curious to open this question up to others, you know, curious Dr. Mader and, and other the oncologists on the call, how do you deal with um, sort of uh, complete response in a patient on therapy for quite some time. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Oh, go ahead. Well, it's, it's Dr. Rosenzweig, the radiation doctor, and that, that is another use of what, what Dr. Sabari was just discussing is another use of radiation, which, again, was a little bit um, too detailed to go into a, a short presentation, but we, where we use SBRT techniques, the very focused treatment, if there's one spot that's not responding uh, to chemotherapy or immunotherapy in someone where the disease has spread. So that's something we commonly do as well. And the side effect profile is, is pretty minimal and, and similar to what, to what I described for early stage lung cancer. Uh, thank you. Yeah, Dr. Meter. Oh, sure. I was just going to add, um, I, uh, this is Dr. Metter. Um, I totally agree with both, um, both perspectives that have just been given, and, and uh, you're, you are better to speak to it, but I was going to mention we often um, you know, talk to our radiation oncology colleagues um, in that setting as well and think about a consolidative approach um, if there's a particular site that could benefit, and then the systemic therapy could, could be ongoing. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Mader. On average, how long is Tegresso effective? Degresso, T-A-G-R-I-S-S-O, effective. If one has EGFR, DEL-19, can one be no evidence of disease for a long time, or is there a higher probability of mutations where a biopsy is needed once again? Yeah, um, a great question, Tegresso. It is certainly um, absolutely standard of care for patients with that EGFR-19 deletion. Um, and while every patient is, is different, um, you know, you know, we hope to get a year or two um, of benefit on average um, from Tegresso, but I think it's it's fair to say that 
um, actual numbers are, are hard to apply in, a, in an individual situation. So I think the most important thing is sort of um, paying attention to your symptoms and talking to your doctor about getting the regular surveillance scans um, and making sure that you're feeling well. And, and at the time that, that there's something that, that does show up on the scan, um, you know, making a point of, again, you mentioned the mutations, looking, again, doing bi repeat biomarker testing um, if the Tigrissa isn't working anymore um, and making sure there's not a new mutation that could actually be targetable with a different EGFR therapy or, or even a different targeted therapy. Um, so that's an important um, point in time to repeat that biomarker testing. Excellent. And actually for Dr. Roy, a question, are there any resources in document form that summarizes the standard of care based on the various mutations. Do you have any at longevity yeah. foundation? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dr. Messner, we actually do have a very simple resource that summarizes the type of treatment that you receive based on the stage of your lung cancer and the type of biomarker you have. Excellent. So, so great and it probably has to get updated twice a day because the progress is so uh, <laughs> rapid. Yes, it is a hot task, but a good one to have. Yeah. So I'm going to ask our speakers to just give takeaways before we conclude the call today. I know we've run over slightly, but I'm going to ask Dr. Sabari to go first, Dr. Nader second, Dr. Rosenzweig third, Dr. Roy fourth, and Ms. Ferenz fifth. So... Um, Okay, go for it. Okay, that's uh, well, just a takeaway. Key, key, key takeaways here, you know, lung cancer can occur in anyone with lungs, uh, and really we should remove the stigma. It's critical to understand the driver mutation in your cancer to be matched to the best possible therapy. And Dr. Mader? Yeah. Sure, I'll just add, I, I think um, key takeaways on my end are that there's, so many exciting new therapies being developed in this space, and a lot of them are kind of dependent on what we see um, on the, both the molecular testing and other biomarker testing. And I think the most important thing to know is just that this changes all the time um, in a good way. And so um, being up to speed and asking, you know, what's the latest in terms of what my tumor should be tested for, um, starting there, I think is an important question um, over the course of, of getting treatment for um, different stages of cancer. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Rosenzweig? Uh, the way we've treated lung cancer has changed dramatically over the past 10 years. So any of the stories or um, experiences that you've heard about from the past, um, what the average person going through treatment is, is much, much better these days. Uh, so if, if you do have this diagnosis, um, it's a much better landscape than it's ever been, and the progress has just really been stunning. Uh, recently. That's so important. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Roy? The only thing I'll add is a lung cancer diagnosis can be very scary. And what you heard from all our leaders is that there's a lot of progress, a lot of treatment options. Don't feel scared. You do not need to feel alone. We are here to serve you. Thank you. And Ms. Renz? Yeah, I would just further that last point that your medical team and your support staff around you are there to serve you and there to answer any questions. We talked a lot about medical, really in-depth things about biomarkers and, and different types of treatments, and it's okay to ask follow-up questions and bring questions to your team to, to kind of get more context to that. So we're, we're glad everyone could join us here on this call to kind of start that conversation. And Ms. Jones, we did have a late-breaking question about support groups, and so could you comment on the support groups um, that we offer for lung cancer, people living with lung cancer and their caregivers? Yeah, our, our online groups at Cancer Care, the national ones that are moderated by oncology social workers, we have a lung cancer patient-specific group, and we have a lung cancer caregiver-specific group. We do have other groups as well separated by, you know, we have a women of color patient group. We also have a young adult caregiver group that aren't specific to lung cancer, but are certainly welcoming of, you know, all diagnoses, but we do have lung-specific programs as well. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been just a phenomenal group, <laughs> I have to say. Um, couldn't wish for a better group of, of speakers um, at all. And, um, and also for participants, you asked really great questions. And although we've done this program before, you've asked much more informed questions, I have to say, quite sophisticated questions, and it really it's a credit that this information is reaching you and that you're asking such great questions. 
Now, as we conclude the program, I, I do want to reiterate that we don't want any one of you to feel alone um, uh, when this program ends. We want you to know now that you're a part of a community of support, both your healthcare team, Longevity Foundation, and Cancer Care. These are resources, and there are many others out there as well. Um, in addition, um, please do check with your healthcare team about their availability evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those always seem to be the time when things happen. So uh, during business hours, you know, you can call the office, but then often people don't know what to do in the evening, weekends, and holidays. So please do that. And again, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.